On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to part two of Kids You Shouldn't Turn Your Back On. If the first one didn't scare you off, this one might. Hopefully, you're not listening to this while babysitting. If you are, just keep one eye on those little darlings. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. First up, we have Jordan Brown. At 11 years old, Jordan murdered his soon-to-be stepmother on February 20th, 2009. Jordan went into the room where 26-year-old Kenzie Houck was sleeping. She was eight months pregnant with a baby boy. Brown took a shotgun given to him by his father and shot Kenzie in the back of the head. He then goes and gets on the school bus along with his soon-to-be seven-year-old stepsister. About 45 minutes later, Kenzie's four-year-old daughter, told some tree cutters that were working in the area what had happened. Police arrived to find Kenzie dead, along with her unborn son. Jordan was questioned by the Pennsylvania State Police the day of the incident, but he wasn't arrested until the next morning. Later, it was confirmed that the murder weapon was a youth model Harrington and Richardson 20-gauge shotgun. The assumption was that Jordan killed his stepmother over jealousy. He was jealous about the attention his stepsisters were getting from his dad, and the fact that another baby was on the way would equal even less attention. They were going to try Jordan as an adult, but he ended up being tried as a juvenile and was convicted of first-degree murder. In 2018, Jordan was exonerated. Why? Well, apparently the court decided that the evidence they found could have been planted by some unknown person. And because of that, there was sufficient evidence to find him not guilty because... There was a reasonable doubt. I also read he was going to be released in 2018 regardless because he would turn 21. And since he was charged as a juvenile, he'd have to be released. I'm assuming exonerated means he will not carry a criminal record with him. The following two cases involve killer duos. Our first duo is Cindy Collier and Shirley Wolf. 14-year-old Shirley liked to write in a journal. On this particular day, she wrote this. Today, Cindy and I ran away and killed an old lady. It was lots of fun. I guess we do not have to make assumptions about Shirley's mindset. Turns out, Shirley and Cindy had known each other for less than one day. In that short amount of time, Shirley and 15-year-old Cindy decide that they are going to run away, and they need to steal a car to do that. And the best way to steal a car, they think, is to murder someone. On June 14, 1983, they go to a condo complex in Auburn, California, and start knocking on doors and doing random things like asking to use the phone, pretending they need directions, or asking for a glass of water. A couple of older ladies observed this, and they, in turn, locked their doors and their windows. Unfortunately, 86-year-old Anna Brackett was a kind-hearted person, and she invited the duo into her two-bedroom condo after they claimed some strange men were following them. 
Shortly after they were allowed in, Anna received a call from her son that he was coming to get her to take her to a bingo game. In response to knowing that Anna would be leaving, the two teenagers then attack her. Shirley grabs Anna around the throat and throws her to the floor. Meanwhile, Cindy goes into the kitchen and finds a knife. She hands it to Shirley, who then stabs Anna in the neck until she is dead. Before leaving, the teens trash the house looking for money and car keys. They get some keys, but when they go out to the garage, the keys do not start the car. So they flee on foot. And here is a heartbreaking fact. The girls were walking and attempting to hitchhike, and Carl Brackett, Anna's 52-year-old son, passes these girls. He makes a comment about it being stupid for two young girls to be hitchhiking like that. He makes this comment to his wife. He has no idea that these girls have brutally murdered his mother. Carl finds his mother's body on the living room floor. She has been stabbed at least 28 times, with one of those wounds being four inches deep. Eleven people in the area of the complex offer descriptions of the girls, and a few of the neighbors who saw them knew Cindy because she sometimes stayed in the same complex as Anna with her own grandparents. At around 2.30 a.m., the police go to talk to them. One of the sheriff's deputies that sees them, they're sleeping in the basement of Cindy's parents' house, is looking at these sleeping girls thinking, no way did they do this. But when the Placer County Sheriff's Department questions Shirley Wolf, she pretty much confesses right off the bat. Later, when talking with Cindy Collier, she confirms Shirley's account and follows it up by saying, quote, After we did it, we wanted to do another one. We just wanted to kill someone, just for fun. In this same confession, Wolf says that Anna begged them to stop, saying she was dying. Shirley Wolf responds by saying this, I turned and I go, good. Both were ultimately found guilty of first-degree murder as juveniles, which carried only an eight-year sentence. Time was added for bad behavior. Cindy Collier was released in 1992 and went on to marry and have four children. She has apparently lived quietly since then. In 1995, Shirley Wolf was released. Shirley kept having some run-ins with the law for a while before she just sort of fell off the radar. She has said to have since moved to the Midwest and is living a quiet, solitary life and reportedly assists victims of child abuse to overcome their inner demons. I believe we all do some pretty stupid stuff as teenagers and maybe some stuff we aren't proud of, but I am not sure how you become a vicious, brutal killer at 14 and then revel in the crime you committed and state you want to kill some more and then just voila, you wake up one day and are a normal person for the rest of your life. I hope, rather than believe, that's the case. Our next duo of killer kids are Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. These two weren't what I would call kids when they committed murder, but close enough. They were 20 and 19. Leopold and Loeb had quite a criminal history prior to stepping it up to murder. Leopold was rich and smart. He graduated from the University of Chicago at age 18 and Loeb from the University of Michigan by the age of 17. By November of 1923, these two had committed a few burglaries and set a few fires. These two subscribe to Nietzsche's concept of the Superman, which, in case you are wondering, is the idea that a superior man will not be the product of long evolution, 
but will occur when any human being with superior potential masters himself and creates his own values, totally rooted in life on this earth. So this is the mentality these two are acting on when they decide to follow up their thefts and arsons with kidnapping. They kidnap 14-year-old Bobby Franks on May 21st, 1924. They use a rented automobile to accomplish this. This happens on Chicago's south side. Loeb, the more brutal of the two, is sitting in the back seat. He hits him several times in the head with a chisel. He then drags Bobby to the back seat where he shoves a rag in his mouth, which ultimately suffocates the boy. The two then drive 20 miles to Hammond, Indiana, where they are going to wait until it gets dark to get rid of the body. First, they pour some hydrochloric acid onto Bobby's face, his genitals, and on top of a distinct abdominal scar that Bobby had on his stomach. They then half-bury his body in a railroad culvert. They then proceed to send notes and make phone calls demanding $10,000 from Bobby's wealthy parents. Before they can get paid, though, the boy's body is found, and there are some clues that lead them right to the culprits. These include Leopold's glasses. The police go to get Leopold and Loeb, and the two immediately confess. Here's something a little interesting for you. Clarence Darrow, famed lawyer, defended the two and was able to convince the judge to give them life rather than the death penalty. They received life in prison plus 99 years for kidnapping. Both were sent to the Northern Illinois Penitentiary near Joliet. In January of 1936, Loeb was slashed with a razor and killed by another inmate after he made sexual advances towards him. Leopold, however, was paroled in 1958 and worked as a hospital technician in Puerto Rico. He got married in 1961 and died of a heart attack 10 years after that. I'm not sure how you get out of jail after 34 years when you've been sentenced to life plus 99, but he did. He also wrote life plus 99 years. I don't plan on reading it. Next, we have Eric Smith. Eric was born January 22, 1980. He was described as a funny and loving kid when he was young. That didn't last, though. When he got older, he had a bit of a problem with an explosive temper, and that made him act out unpredictably and violently. He was diagnosed as suffering from intermittent explosive disorder. Smith was a loner, and he suffered from bullying because of his appearance. He had ears that stuck out a bit, thick glasses, red hair, and freckles. On August 2nd, 1993, at age 13, Eric lured four-year-old Derek Roby into the woods while they were both on their way to summer camp. Smith attempted to strangle Derek and then either hit him on the head with a rock or dropped a couple of large rocks onto the little boy's head. And this is awful, but he sodomized the child with a tree limb. This he claims later that he did to verify that the boy was dead I don't believe that for one damn minute. Derek's mother immediately reported him missing and his body was found within hours. Within that week after the body was found, Eric admitted what he did to his family. Eric was charged with second degree murder and was sent at first to a juvenile facility until 2001. Then he was sent to the maximum security Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora, New York. At one point, he wrote an apology letter to Derek's family and read it on public television. 
At the end of the apology, he said he couldn't stand the thought of facing life behind bars. Too bad, so say I. So far, it seems that that is not going to change. He's been denied parole 10 times, with the latest being in 2020. He's now 40 and incarcerated at Woodbourne Correctional Facility in the Catskills. And let's hope he stays there. Let's go to Jacksonville, Florida in 1998. 14-year-old Josh Phillips gets himself a life sentence for murdering his eight-year-old neighbor, Maddie Clifton. Josh was home alone that day when Maddie came over to play baseball with him. He knew he was not supposed to have anyone over when his parents were not home, but he let her stay and play anyway. As they're playing, he hits the baseball, and the ball hits Maddie in the eye. She is bleeding and crying very loudly. Josh knows his dad will be home at any time, and he knows he's going to be in trouble. Instead of doing what a normal person would do and get her some help, he takes Maddie into the house and proceeds to try to strangle her. He does this with a phone cord and keeps at it for 15 minutes. When that doesn't work, he takes the baseball bat, hits her with it, and then stuffs her under his waterbed. Pretty soon, his dad does come home. Josh goes and chats with him for a bit, and then he goes back to his room. Once there, he hears Maddie moaning and realizes she isn't dead. He stabs her 11 times to silence her, which he does. Maddie dies from these stab wounds. A massive search is undertaken for the missing little girl. The show 48 Hours was even present, and thousands of people were looking for her. Josh's mother, upon entering his room, thinks the waterbed is leaking due to fluid on the floor and the bad smell. She starts digging around looking for the leak and sees a foot, and she then discovers Maddie's decomposing body. She leaves the house immediately and calls police. Josh is arrested that same day and ends up with a life sentence for the crime. Now, this is in the 90s, and there are a lot of states that are starting to reconsider their laws when it comes to trying juveniles as an adult, as in in favor of it, trying them as adults with harsher sentences. This is the era in which Josh was sentenced, and he ended up with life without parole. Josh has done well in prison, and even though he's been in the general population since age 15, he's never been assaulted or had any issues. He got his high school diploma and works as a law clerk advising fellow inmates. Florida Senator Stephen Geller introduced a bill that would make first-time violent juvenile offenders serving life sentences eligible for parole after eight years. It's not going to help Josh, though, or it wouldn't have helped Josh because it would not apply retroactively only going forward. Surprisingly, Maddie's mother, Sheila Clifton, has had a change of heart over the years. She says she doesn't hate Josh. She hates what he did. And she can't imagine a child being put away for life. In 2017, he was resentenced again to life in prison. He is eligible for resentencing again, 2023. So for now, Josh isn't going anywhere. We're going to end the list with a serial killer, Peter Woodcock. This Canadian killer was also a child rapist who showed the first signs of being a psychopath at a pretty young age. Peter was born March 5, 1939 to a teenage mother who placed him for adoption. He was handed around for the first three years to different foster homes where he was physically abused in at least one of them and sustained a pretty serious neck injury. He was finally adopted by a well-to-do family who paid for private school education, therapy, and provided him with bikes to ride. 
When Peter reached his teen years, his hobby was to ride his bike around the outskirts of Toronto, and he'd do this so he could find victims. He also had a little fantasy going on inside of his head while doing this. He'd imagine that he was the leader of a gang of 500 boys that he called the Winchester Heights Gang. His foster parents were aware of his love of biking, but had no idea he was out sexually assaulting children. He assaulted a lot of kids, and eventually it led to murder. At age 17, in September of 1956, he lured 7-year-old Wayne Mallett onto the Toronto Exhibition Grounds. On October 6, 1956, he lured and killed 9-year-old Gary Morris. And then on January 19, 1957, the third victim was Carol Voice, 4 years old, whom he murdered in a ravine under the Prince Edward Viaduct. He killed his victims by strangulation, but before he strangled them, he would beat them and insert objects into their genitals. He was caught after being seen riding his bike away from the murder of his last victim, Carol. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was sent to a maximum security mental health center, but as time passed, they perceived him as less dangerous, and he was then sent to a lower security facility. Once at the new facility, Peter changed his name to David Michael Kruger, and he also fell in love, or so he says, with a fellow patient named Dennis Kerr. But Dennis was not interested and rejected the sexual advances of Peter David. Out on a weekend pass, actually the first ever weekend pass that he got, Peter David talks Bruce Hamill, a former lover of his, into helping him kill Dennis. Together, Bruce and Peter David stab Dennis to death, and then immediately afterwards, Peter David takes himself to the police station and turns himself in. He is transferred back to the maximum security facility he was originally in, and he died there 19 years later on March 5th, 2010. And now I'm going to do something that I do not normally do. I'm going to rant for a minute. I do not understand the justice system, or at least I don't 90% of the time. How does someone like Mary Bell, who murdered two little boys just for the hell of it, get out? How does Peter David sexually assault, mutilate, and kill three young children and get a weekend pass? And then you have Josh Phillips, who, yes, did something terrible to Maddie Clifton. He has no chance at all of ever seeing the light of day again, even when the murdered girl's mother believes he deserves a chance. I am not saying I agree with Josh being let out, but what I am saying as I have no idea why some courts throw the book, the chair, and the kitchen sink at a person, and others kind of throw a pillow and go, meh. And yes, I know Peter David was in Canada, but still. It will never cease to amaze me the huge disparity in punishments depending on where the crimes were committed and where the sentencing is done. If anyone out there can give me a reason, I would love to hear it. And last piece of this rant. I don't know the inner workings of the families these kids came from. I'm sure some were abusive and who knows what else. But I still have to wonder why we have yet to figure out what it is that pushes someone over to the dark side. I know people who have had horrendous childhoods and gone on to still be stable adults that have no urge to kill and maim. Some take medications to help cope and some go to therapy, which is fantastic. But when are we going to find that puzzle piece that will help us identify these potential killers before they kill? We all know the signs to look for, at least those of us who are into true crime do, 
But what about those who don't display any signs, like some of these kids we've talked about? I'm at a loss. I hope that if anyone listening that has friends or family members that they are concerned about, please don't keep quiet. Speak up. Offer to help. The National Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's toll-free number is 1-800-662-4357. Use it, please. That's it. Rant over. Thanks for sticking with me so far. Hang tight for the final crumb. In the meantime, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Crime Biscuit, Facebook at Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast, or send me an email at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. And here's your final crumb. Keep an eye on your kid. Keep an eye on your neighbor's kid. Keep an eye on every kid that comes within your line of sight. Be a little paranoid if you need to, because you never know if the one time you turn your back on that slightly odd child down the street, it might be the last time you do anything. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.